0: And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Sierra, South-West Sierra, and North-North-East Sierra. Wind South-West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, tyne, dogger, German bite, French kiss and Swiss roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East
1: End. Operating at any level, any time,
2: anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club.
3: They're coming for you.
4: Look, there comes one of them now.
5: Welcome to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. At Eastcast, we come together once a month to delve into the arts, the culture and the people of East London. But these are issues that are relevant much further afield. My name's Nia Sharpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise and Anna Xavier. Yes.
6: So um, for today's show, we have musician Robert Chaney in the studio for an interview and live session. We talked to the owner of a barber shop that has a 70s feel to it, the founder of a community car boot sale, Jumbo Trail. And Pearl, am I missing something?
1: Oh, We also have the an interview with the founder of the London Jam Factory. And um, more guests of the studio who we'll be hearing from very soon.
6: Yes, and if you like what you hear, you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at East Coast Show, and check all our interviews, listings and music online at
5: eastcastshow.com. Now, first up, we are joined in the studio with Camilla Bike and Danielle Manning from Podium.me, and that's a global audio platform for stories created by young people under 25. But before we speak to Camilla and Danielle about what Podium.me is all about, let's have a listen to a short clip of one of their more light-hearted stories.
1: When I take a selfie, I'm taking it so I know how I want myself to look, the angle. Whereas when I ask other people to take a picture,
6: the picture might not come out as clear. The amount of selfies I take in in a day depends on how good the selfie is. So if it's not too good the first two times, then (laughs) carry on till I get the right picture.
7: (laughs) I might take a selfie in the
1: morning before I leave. And, you know, take about two. And, you know, I can show different side covers. And, yes, I think they make me look absolutely flawless.
6: You have to sit down and do a selfie session mm-hmm. where you take about, like, 50 and then you narrow it down yeah. to, like, the two that you like, like... like. Selfies are, like, their best inventions ever.
4: But it's like when you take a selfie, you do it once, but then when you do it once, you take, like, 100... If I'm looking absolute on point, I'll take about literally about fifty selfies in one go. It's
6: usually like, oh that one's terrible. Oh I don't like it. <laughs> oh I look nice in that one. i put that one on Facebook. <laughs> yeah.
4: I love selfies,
2: makes me look glorious. Ah, <laughs> oh, well I think I look pretty fancy today. I just wanna like capture this moment. <laughs>
5: So, Camilla and Danielle, thanks so much for joining us. We heard a little snippet of one of your stories there, um, but we'll hear more later. Um, so, first of all, Camilla, how, how did podium? what is Podium.me and how did it all start?
8: Podium.me began as a bit of a dream, and I can't quite believe that it's got to the size it is, but it began as a result of the riots that happened in London. I live near Clapham Junction and went down to help clear up the day after the riots and bumped into a group of teenagers who were out with their brooms um, cleaning up the streets and I noticed that the world's media was camped out on the the shop doorways and no one was talking to these young people so I said can I interview you and I just used my phone and they were quite shy and they didn't really want to say anything and so the idea came um, to actually train them up as journalists so that they could interview people the same age and get the real stories out from young people.
5: And Danielle, you're a young journalist and we'll be hearing a story um, of yours about homelessness later later on. So why did you feel compelled to, to cover this particular topic and how did you go
2: about creating the story? I think um, all of the stories that Podium make kind of come from the issues that really matter to young people. Um, and so there's a weekly brief and the way I go about doing interviews is I, when I meet up with people and have a chat with them, I ask them what they want to talk about. And so for that for that particular period of time, it came out that homelessness was something that people really wanted to talk about. It. So it really came from came from the people I, I was interviewing.
5: Mm-hmm. And how how has
8: Podium.me grown, Camilla? Well, we started in London, and then we began to work with universities that do journalism courses um, to find new volunteer journalists. So we're linked with about 43 universities now, and also with youth centres with um, projects that maybe um, foster carers are involved with or um, basically anything the Prince's Trust anywhere where young people gather the guys the scouts anybody can get involved but we put the net out really really wide and people don't need to have any particular qualifications to join us just anyone between the age of 14 and 25.
5: And and your work has then been picked up by news organisations all over the world, is that right?
8: Absolutely. Um, We had one journalist who sent in his first piece and it was an interview with a fellow sixth former who'd just arrived from Syria as a refugee and he happened to do an interview with her, didn't really know where it was going to go and the World Service picked up on it and asked us to come into the studio and explain what Podium.me was and how we work with young people and it gave him enormous exposure and it was the first piece he'd ever done. So he was an untrained, if you like, journalist but I don't believe that training can actually teach you those skills of empathy and listening and asking open-ended questions.
5: So what's the overall aim of Podium?
8: The aim is to involve as many people as possible in creating unique and fresh content um, which can be anonymous so it's a very safe space for young people Um, there are no trolls around um, that can get at our interviewees we're really um, careful to protect what people are saying because some things that people say other people don't like but those things still need to be said so the, the aim if you like is yeah to provide a safe space where people can feel free to pitch ideas that aren't mainstream necessarily.
5: Danielle you were nodding then so is that something that you are concerned about the sort of the trolling and the the yeah I think
2: more than that though the idea that there's a space that Podium Me creates for young people to talk about things that really matter to them that they otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to talk about whether it's on radio or not and Podium Me really provides that space and it's a safe space as well.
1: Um, Is there something also about being taken seriously? Where so, you know, if you're just, um I don't know, putting your views on Facebook or on Twitter, this is like it s- feels like a more serious way of, of getting young yeah, people. Yeah, definitely. To, to I
2: think if someone asks you to be interviewed, um it kind of makes your makes your opinions legitimate. Um so, for example, I had the really amazing experience recently. I um asked my friend's little brother if he would be comfortable talking about internet pornography for podium me and um I really learned a lot about him and he learned a lot about me and it was kind of that wouldn't have happened something that wouldn't happen if there hadn't been that i hadn't been there with kind of my recorder wanting to interview him mm-hmm. those Those things don't occur unless you make space for them
5: and do you want to go on to? be a journalist is that is that your
2: yeah kind of and, and your... yeah I'm, I'm looking to get into radio journalism this is a great way to kind of learn those skills
5: definitely um so what's next for podium have you got well planned? we've
2: got some big global
8: plans um we've been approached by a journalist who's studying in sussex who wants to start podium iceland in icelandic um we're also working with germany with the states and we've got some programs going with um npr the national public radio in america and we are open to ideas so we have journalists in Hong Kong um, and Denmark and various other places and in France so it's it's very organic the way that we grow we don't have a strategy as such we're all about facilitating something for the people that would like it so when people come and ask to be part of it we generally say yes and if they have an idea as long as it's not illegal or libelous we usually say yes to that too.
6: And, and especially now, um, it's so easy to get involved because everyone has technology at their reach. So it must be really exciting to to getting to to get information from all these people everywhere, anywhere, really, isn't it?
8: It is. And someone mentioned earlier that it's a, a serious platform, and and I think um, it's serious in the sense that it's professional, and we have training days twice a year, um, kindly hosted by Reuters and recently by the BBC in Salford, and. Our young people dress up smart, they turn up there, they listen to incredible speakers. We have the controller of Five Live talking about his career. And so we are elevating these young people to a status which they wouldn't normally have. And I think that that's really, really important as a serious platform for young people to feel that they are being listened to. And our audience isn't young people. It tends to be adults and people who want to connect with that age group. Mm
5: So, we're going to hear a, a little um, a story uh, made by Danielle about homelessness in just a second. But just um, so, how, if people want to get involved, what do they do?
8: Literally go on the website podium.me, and uh, our journalist manager, Penny, would be delighted to reply to any emails you send. Um, we need to know a little bit about you, and then we set you up with a Dropbox, and off you go. It really is incredibly simple. All you need is something to record on it could be a smartphone or a dictaphone.
5: Fantastic. Well, thank you both of you for coming in and um, let's hear your story, Daniel.
7: My name's Ben, but I'm on the streets, I'm homeless. is a poem that I've wrote, I'm just going to read it out for you. Uh, It's called Judged. When we sit on the ground, we get judged from all around. You don't have to dress or smell rotten to become one of the forgotten. So for all of you that don't already know me, have a chat, take a seat, and I think you'll realise that I'm pretty sweet.
6: Well... I think everybody tends to like judge like now and again we can't really help it but I mean, like it just depends like the sit- sort of situation.
4: I find it difficult to define whether or not I judge a homeless person. Obviously, I don't look at someone and say, "Oh my God, they're homeless. That's disgusting. Oh, I can't go near them." But I do feel a sense of pity and like sorrow for them just because it must be such a horrible situation. So I suppose yeah, I do judge them, but not in a cruel way.
7: How do you think people treat you generally? Uh, there's a lot of nice people out there, you know, there is kind people, but there's a lot of people that, you know, look down on you as scum.
9: 20% of the people, like, do, like, stop and talk to you. But, like, the other people just either, like, yeah, here's a penny or, like, or, here, yeah, like, just, no you know, go and get a job. It all depends. I really get all those types of different people.
6: There was one time where I'd just been shopping and I gave him a croissant. I'm from Manchester, and I used to work there part-time. Um, so I, I was in, like, a second-hand shop, so we used to get, like, a lot of homeless people coming in, asking for, like, if we could give them donations of clothes, especially when it was cold. And sometimes you'd get to know them, and a lot of them, it wasn't their fault they were on the streets, and they were trying the hardest, even though people thought they weren't, to get off the streets
9: what happened to get you on the streets? Just, like, just made, like, bad, wrong decisions. Like, when I, when I was a child, my first ever, like, first ever time I got arrested was when I was 11, That was theft from PC world, and that's what, like, started a bad relationship off with my parents. And ever since that, I just kept committing offences, which I don't want to do anymore.
7: Could you just tell me your story about how you came to be, sort of, actually selling poems, sort of thing? Oh, right, I ended up selling poems. My mate Benji does it. He inspired me to start doing it. He told me to start doing it. Um, And I just started writing. And everybody said that, you know, I've got some proper talent with doing it. So I've been doing it for now a couple of months, really. And how long have you been sort of on the streets? Uh, On and off for a year. What led to that, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, Basically, I lost my flat as a teenager through rent a and... When I went to the town hall, they classed me as intentionally homeless, so I can't get a council property. so I've got to private rented. So until I get the money for a private rented, I'm stuck here.
4: I don't think I have ever spoken to a homeless person off my own back, like, intentionally. I think I've had homeless people come up to me, not, like, ask for money, but just be like, oh, like, how's your evening?
7: You've got obviously got talent for it. What sort of poems are you writing? Uh, just basically how I feel, what I see anything that inspires me really and what do you see? Uh, when people walk by you know and the way they don't stop like some things like that or the way people judge you the way I feel about what my situation is you know just like that today it's not such a bad day but like yesterday it was raining like where do you find somewhere to stay?
9: Depending like where, where we are at the time like we tend to look for like shelter so we can sit down then we don't have to actually move it and c- so people think we're like oh yeah we're going to get the money for drugs then but like we're not really like sitting here staying here all night and then like one of us stay here in the mor- basically stay here while somebody goes and do something like say sorts of housing or food out And do you like always choose the same spot? Uh, mainly yeah Why's that? So we know it's safe. So like here now you think it's pretty safe. Why, why do you think it's safe? Because it's like a main road that a lot of people, cameras about, police go up and down here all the time. Because a lot of people I think will probably walk past and think that you might cause problems
7: for them. But like is it more likely people cause problems for you?
9: Put people will cause more problems first. Because like we had one guy the other day like just stopped right in front of me like what are you looking at and what are you looking at. But like trying to kick me head in just for like just looking at him once.
4: They are just normal people who've had horrible circumstance that led them to live on the streets. But no, I definitely think I'm going to start, like, saying hello and just trying to be a bit more open and, yeah, less judgmental.
1: Hello, my name's Ellen. Livia, Bryony.
4: Paolo.
0: Sarah. I'm um,
1: Sadie.
4: Hello, it's Alex. You're listening to Podium.me
1: thanks again to Camilla and Danielle from podium.me Now for something completely different. Um, I met Pierre Louis um, Pellipot um, in his kitchen in Highbury, and we talked about jam, exotic flavors and life-changing decisions <laughs>
10: I mean, when you go and see the yogurt range of the supermarket, you've got zillion. Jam, you've got less than 10 flavor. It's exactly the same all over and all over again. I feel like, why on earth are we doing that? I mean, why we can't do something different? My name is Pierre-Louis, I'm a confiturier, I'm the proud owner and creator of the London Jam Factory, which is a, a preserve maker. So my mother gave me that pan and because I was raised with, uh, with jam, I thought like, oh, I need to do that for her. So uh, I started uh, get to cook some jam and I was working, I had my job before. I was a managing director of a big company, a contractor of Eurostar, where we had a thousand people with, you know, over three countries like France, UK, and Belgium, so I was traveling quite extensively as well. But I always found it fun to make the jam, and I always loved it, so I started to do that here. And uh, then, of course, I said, okay, where well, do you sell the fruit? Because I mean, I, don't, I didn't want to make jams with the fruit that I buy in the shop because that would be too expensive, so I went to the market. It's absolutely amazing there is nothing fancy it's quite rough it's male dominating it's you've got a lot of people who are you know they're here to make a business but the atmosphere is fantastic so I went there and so I loved the, the market also I was waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning but like my job plus the I'm waking up at 4 o'clock I mean I started to tell, okay, I, can't, I can't do that anymore and then uh, I gave that to my to my family and then to my friends. And then we had a friend who had a coffee shop in Islington uh, So she said, oh, I would like to have some just to try. And then it grows quite organically. And then there's another coffee shop who came. So I, I be- it became like quite serious. And I said, oh, I can't do that anymore. I need to stop. And my partner said, well, why don't you stop your job? then I said, oh, I didn't think about that. So I, I quit my job and I set up properly. That was last April actually, I, I settled properly the company, started to do that a bit more professionally and then I very soon realized that I couldn't stay in, um, in my kitchen here, so I had to have another kitchen um, in, uh, in Wembley where everything is set up and properly done because I mean it goes everywhere, there's sugar everywhere, there's the floor is sticky everywhere so it was really really horrible here. But uh, there it's, it's properly organized and it's, uh, and, and it's, it's nicely set up. And, and then that's it. You know. So one day I do, I prepare all the fruit. The next day I cook them. So uh,
1: like the transition from going from homemade jam to not, not quite industrial scale, but it's like large scale. It is, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah how, how is the experience different for you?
10: It's fascinating, extremely interesting and very challenging as well. Because you're never at the right place or at the right time. So you're either overgeared geared or under-geared. So there is, uh, and, and also, it's, there's a financial con- constraint because, I mean, you put yourself in a kitchen, but you don't have your clients opposite of you. Or if you have your clients there, they ask you, where's your kitchen? You know, you can't pro- uh, produce here. So it's, it's always a bit of a challenge to adapt. I started to experiment because I was extremely bored as well with this traditional strawberry raspberry. And I feel like why on earth jam? You've got less than ten flavor. It's exactly the same all over and all over again. I feel like why on earth are we doing that? I mean, why we can't do something different? And this is where I started to imagine, oh, what could be a good idea to mix, you know, things? You know, and I started with strawberry because that was strawberry season. And I looked at a lot of recipes You know the I mean, uh, having some strawberries, some mint, for instance, it's quite basic. So I so feel like we can. I mean, that's an easy one to to make as a jam. But then uh, I saw some recipes about strawberry and Sichuan pepper. You know, which is beautiful. So say so we can make a jam out of that. And then basically, through this kind of association, I tried to expand to you know explore a little bit the the taste. And um, I'd like now almost like. Almost 100 flavors different, but now I'm shorting it again because it's, I can't maintain yeah. all of them. So we've
1: got some jams here, a selection. What have you chosen for? So
10: I've got a quince, orange blossom and raspberry juice. This is one of my favorites. The way I work, the way I create something, for instance, I really I cook the fruit. And then at the very last minute, I try to imagine what could be associated with it. And quince is very flowery. It's a beautiful fruit. I mean it's very unknown, underrated underrated, and you've got only this quince jelly that you serve which is absolutely boring and full of horrible stuff and I I really don't like that. But as a fruit, I mean you take a quince, you put it in a a fruit bowl and you will see the, the, the smell, the smell, it's really going everywhere and it's beautiful. So I really worked, I love quince, and um, and I thought it was orange blossom, which is also flowery. And I put some raspberry juice to to color it a little bit. Uh, so Yeah, you can really smell the, the yeah.
1: quince. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
10: And it's... Um, Let's try that. I quite like, it. I mean, this one is... Um,
1: yeah, I mean, you can really tell it's, it's quince, but it's got that kind of sweetness, extra sweetness. Because yeah, yeah. it's quite tart quince, so yeah. you have to add quite a lot of sugar, I yeah.
10: imagine. Actually... All my jam, and this is another aspect of how I do the jams. I um, uh, didn't want to put as much sugar as all the recipes are. Normally, legally, actually, if you want to call it jam, you need to put 65% of sugar. And uh, and I found like it's, I mean, in a pot, it's normally 70% of sugar. And I think this is crazy. So I reduced by half. So I really wanted to have the fruit more than the sugar. So this is why, I mean, also the name is the London Jam Factory. All the jams are called uh, preserves because the sugar content is not as high as it should be. The taste of the fruit comes much, much stronger, actually. Mm -hmm. Also, it's quite sweet. It's not unsweetened at all. So uh... is
1: it the raspberry that's giving it that extra sweetness?
10: The quince is already quite sweet uh, by nature. But it's, it's a matter of uh, taste. I mean, some are a bit more sharp and some are a bit more... I mean, sharp-wise, for instance, we can try, try the apricot. And, so and, what's this one? apricot? And lavender. This is a bit more sharp. I mean, there's a bit less... Um, I mean, it's exactly the same. We are around 49% of, of sugar, so it's half of it. Uh, mm,
1: that's, that's really... Um, you can taste like the flowering sort of Yeah. Blossomy. It's very fresh. That's like
10: a sort of spring, I would say. Yeah. It's um and it's very interesting also because a lot of people make fruit make make jams with very ripened fruit. And this is not good because the more ripe the fruit is, the less pectin it has. So the more free. So you need to choose it not totally green, but not totally overripe. So you need to there's a moment where you need to go quickly. And and that's also why I go to the market quite regularly because I would, I could easily go two times in a row, to to the market just because the fruit are not ready yet and I just want to pick up when it's ready.
1: How seasonal is your jam? I mean, do you work with fruit when it's supposed to be in season? Yeah, yeah,
10: yeah. Like for instance, I could. There's plenty of strawberry in the market. But I don't take them. I'm waiting for the English one to come. When you've got the choice, I mean that's ridiculous not to do it. So I rather wait a little bit because the English strawberry will come with with such a weather like that it will come probably within a month, month and a half. So I can easily wait, and then when it's full season, then I could do a lot, and then and then that's it
1: does the sugar make jam last longer is that part of it so how long would your jams last? do you have to keep them in the fridge is that no 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 No? it's
10: uh they're closed they are one year chef life actually it's nicer to eat a jam three months after it was done because the the flavor has the time to infuse properly the fruit is getting more you know sweetened i mean there's something uh, happening. After a year you can still keep them but it's there's a bit more, I mean you can see it's more, much more sweet.
1: And how did you get inspired for your flavors? Like, how did you think that lavender and apricot could go well so together? So the way I do
10: it's, um, I mean the process I when I cook the normally a jam is you put sugar, the fruit, you put for 20 minutes and it's ready and I don't do that because I put half the amount of sugar. So I usually cook one day for five minutes let it cool down second day five minutes cool down and the third day this is where I adjust the, the cooking time and this is where I decide what flavor and that's a very uh, intellectual I would say exercise because I need to focus and to close my eyes and to say I tried the, the jam and I said what does that need to other counterbalance so for instance when you've got an acid fruit I want something sweet or or the opposite or flour or something like that or a spice I usually oppos contrast because I think it's nice. It's a very emotional moment because it's very on my own world and my concentrator close my eyes, I don't want to have any noise, I don't want to have anybody around. I just say, okay, what would be the the perfect taste? I mean the apricot and lavender, I remember I was uh, thinking of going to Provence for the summer. And you know when you think about Provence apricots and things like that and lavender and thing and, and it's okay, let's let's try that and, and it and it worked Really, really, really well, I did the raspberry and geranium as well, and I was totally out of the blue. i mean I was in my garden, I had a few geranium, and I smelled that and I said mm, there's a bit of lemon aspect, and I say, "Oh, that could be great with you know and, and you smell, you smell and and then suddenly I think goes in part of your brain, and then when you see the the raspberry it's okay that that could work and it's it's fabulous and then it 's a question of dosage because you can overpower. One flavor, so you need to be very careful with that, and uh, and that's the difficult part because it's um, when the jam is hot or so it it doesn't it doesn't reflect the true flavor or when it's cold. So you need to be very careful with that. But
1: should we try another one? This one's
10: a- so um, orange and cardamom. Oh wow, that's a very nice wine. Um,
1: so this is like more of a kind of spicy.
10: Yes, I mean this is. um Fairly light in the cardamom aspect, but cardamom I love. I mean, for me, it's a very, very... um...
1: That's interesting because it really does taste like marmalade. Yeah. But it hasn't got that kind of marmalade texture. Yeah. And how supportive have your friends and family been?
10: Very interesting because this is a very good stereotype of the difference between France and UK. All my friends in France said, are you crazy? Get your face a proper job. Stop like, you know, stop playing. But uh, all my English friends said, just go for it, have a try, have fun. I mean, I leave my job because I, I didn't have face anymore in that corporate world where there was a lot of politics and I, and I was done with that. I might need to come back, I might need to do that again, I don't know. But at, at that moment, I had enough. I mean, I had 10 amazing years as a managing director. I, I was really, fant- I mean, I don't regret one inch that I don't regret at all to have left that world.
1: So you can find all these jams in a selection of delis and cafes. You can have a look at the London Jam Factory website to find out where you can get them. And I actually first tasted them in a cafe called Maison d'Etre, which is in Highbury, in Islington. And they do a great thing where, so if you, you um, order a piece of toast or a piece of brioche, just, they've just they got a whole selection of jams and you can just choose whichever ones you want. And I just tried loads of different ones there. I think you might Ooh. have
5: stumbled across something. You know, instead of wine tasting, you know, for the teetotaler, you can do jam tasting. I think that's where things are
1: going. And uh, And when we were talking, it almost felt like he was kind of um, making perfume, you know. with all Yeah, it does sound like it. He He loves jam.
5: (laughs) There's no Uh, doubt.
1: Yeah, there's no (laughs) doubt about that, for sure.
5: So uh, next in the studio, we have musician Robert Chaney here with us. Robert, welcome. Uh, You're going to play a track or two for us, uh, but we like to have a chat on the show as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're from Florida. That's right. And um, so how do the the music scenes differ between the the two countries?
3: Well, um... I said, there's a lot more going on in London. Okay. know. It's a much bigger place. Yeah. Um, but what I liked about Florida was that, you know, all the different kind of people, no matter what kind of music you're into, all the different sub-scenes and subcultures and stuff that all kind of mix and work on stuff together, and you don't really find that a lot in London.
6: Mm-hmm. I, I imagine that uh, it's so hard to get into your own stuff that you just get really focused on it, perhaps. That maybe sometimes collaborations or, you know, just supporting acts sometimes that don't happen.
3: Yeah, well, I think it's like that, y- you know, in a big city, you'll meet some of the loneliest people. You know, it's so hard to meet people in a huge city. And I think that goes for m- musicians as well.
6: Uh, wh- what I found normally is that you have a small circle betwi- of your genre or something, and, and then that's that's how people get connected and, and, you
5: know, just get to know other musicians.
3: Yeah, definitely.
5: So, in an interview I read, you you said uh, you would describe what you do with storytelling. Yeah. Um So, so where do these stories come from, and and how do they evolve into songs?
3: Well, I, I guess they kind of come from, you know, watching a movie or reading a book or something, and then applying, applying that to stuff that you've experienced or that I've experienced, and um, just trying to be creative. I mean, I just you know this this last couple years for me has been about studying storytelling and what is how does a plot go and things like that you know so
1: so where have you been getting your inspiration for this study
3: well i'd like to there's a lot of a lot of films there was this um there's a great dvd rental place i think it moved but it used to be on brick lane and uh i got a membership there. Like. The second day I came to London, and I just go and rent. They let you rent three at a time. I just always be renting, and uh, so I say watched a lot of movies and things are, like that.
6: Are there any themed ones? Do you find yourself just going through the same kind of story storytelling, or the, the same kind of type? Or
3: I don't know. I like I like I like things that have interpersonal drama. You know what I mean? So like.
1: So, how personal are these stories? Let's let's hear it. <laughs> are, are these kind of based on real life situations, or are you kind of projecting some, I some think, storytelling? I think
3: parts of parts of it is real life. You know, the uh, some of the feelings that went into the story, like for instance, the song I'm going to play is uh, there's a, like there's a lot of guilt in it, and you know, I never. You know, knew anybody that did this particular thing or was in this particular situation but I think it's a common feeling to feel guilty about something and want to cover it up and the little white lie just kind of blo- ballooning out of proportion so it's kind of a little bit of everything
5: So um, your album Cracked Picture Frames is out now right. and you're performing at Servant Jazz Quarters in Dalston in East London uh, tomorrow night the 14th of May but... Um, but your music is, uh, is on Bandcamp and yeah. you've got your website as well, haven't you? Yeah. So, um, Robert, do you want to introduce the track you're going to play?
3: Yeah, so this song is called The Cyclist and it's, uh, it's inspired by one of these films that, uh, that I was talking about earlier. And it's kind of with a whole truckload of other stuff. Can you tell
1: us the film in particular? It's
3: called Death of a Cyclist, actually. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wonderful. Thanks. Take it away. away.
0: All right. (laughs) (laughs) I've only had. One love in my life, and she and my brother were married. But her eyes, they were mine, and the same with her heart, and the same with the babies she carried. Twice a week noon times we'd head out of town to a motel the next county over and we'd whisper our secrets and sweat out our demons in the backwoods of East Oklahoma. It was late on the back road back home and she was driving my black Eldorado. I was catching up sleep on the passenger side dreaming dreams that I'd never wake up to. Then a thud and a thump and a screeching of tires and a bicyclist mangled and flying. And I snapped wide awake and I burst out the door but when I reached him I saw he was dying. And she ran up to my side and we stared at the ground To where the price of our sins was laying And the silence of guilt echoed around Just the buzzing of crickets was playing And then back in the car Well, I stared at her tears Flowing down the seat cover's stitching and with a glance and a nod and an unspoken promise, I turned the key and started the engine. Nine weeks hobbled by and we didn't speak once. I didn't touch her nor wish to be touched. I spun alone in the bed in the sick depths of night and my daytime was faded and broken Till one Wednesday noon time when the telephone rang and I froze when the voice shined electric Cause the sergeant was friendly but stern like a priest and he called me downtown to answer some questions one small little room and one hot burning lamp and one cigarette gone then another one paper to sign and one phone call to make and I dialed the house of my brother And the trial, it went quick And the pleading went easy In the courthouse in East Oklahoma And it was open and shut Cause the witness they got Was that bicyclist Out of his coma And I've got ten years now To think long and slow on That vision of my brother begging For the love of God Why won't you testify But I only thought of his wife and his children I serve one for the broken bones that we left And two for the shatters of spirits And three for the babies that I barely know And four for the corners of heaven
6: Listening to this cast show on Resonance 104.4 FM, and there was Robert Cheney and um, with the cyclist, and he will be sticking around to play another track at the end of the show, so you should definitely stick around too. And now we are into something different: male grooming, and that's something that in the past few years have been looking backwards in time. It's a craft with an increasing following. So, I know along to Smiths about the shop in Hackney, that has a very 70s feel to it.
11: Yeah, we did it quite quickly, we had some very good friends I called in all the favours, really, for the design element and the building element I'm uh, Giles (laughs) Habersmith, the owner of Smiths, of um, Hackney Road, E2 I think for me the thing about Smiths is the fact that it's a place you can come and stop a while, um, you know, read a really cool magazine, pick up a book, enjoy a V60 coffee or maybe at the end of the evening have a, like a craft beer. And then when you have your hair cut it's about the quality of the cut but also about the fact that there's no time limit. There's no rush, you can sit back, enjoy, relax and sort of step off for a while.
6: Since you opened the doors, I've been having good feedback and a lot of people already, because in fact you were telling me they were kind of expected they wouldn't pick up so quickly. So that was surprising.
11: Yeah, it's been very good. There's been people coming in every day. I've met people who work on uh, movies, psychoanalysts, journalists, a real cross-section. But what's nice for me is that um, all the people live locally. One of the other great things about having local customers is the fact that you can trade. So things like my business cards... Um, I had those printed in the uh, the font that uh, my graphic designer did for us um, and I've traded some haircuts for those and last week I met a really great photographer who came in and had his haircut and I needed some uh, professional photographs done at the shop to send out to magazines and uh, same again. I traded that for some haircuts, so hair. yeah. So you can sort of you can swap the haircuts out for things. I don't know if there's any ceiling to it or any feel real real limit, but um, it's always worth a try. Everyone always needs a haircut, so there we go. Yeah.
6: Okay. So what do you think about the, yeah. the ascending of men's groom, yeah. grooming? And,
11: and I think with the men's grooming, I still think there's uh, elements where you know the guys, whether they. They've gone for the Canadian lumberjack American heritage look, or they're going for the preppy look, or they're going for maybe the Italian businessman look. Again, with Hackney, it's very diverse the way people look, but we incorporate it all here, really, whether it's beard trims, the guys have got big beards, or whether they want something a bit more spivy and a polished sort of haircut, slick back, Italian style, really. Well, we got it open within 10 days and we wanted something that was kind of contemporary and dare I say cool. But also we really wanted it to be inviting, you know, hence there's a lot of wood in the shop. So it does look like you kind of want to step inside and just see what we're doing and what it's about, really.
6: To be honest, when I walked past it, I thought it was more like, a, well, a combination of a furniture shop. Why did you decide to go through that route?
11: I think uh, incorporating some of uh, my favourite architect, um, Carlos Scarpa. But I think the comment you said about the furniture shop is quite interesting because part of the the remit of the shop is uh, my love of mid-century modern furniture is the fact that we sell it here as well. The idea being, if you're sitting, having your hair cut in the main room, you might well comment there's a nice vase or a chair or a sideboard and we well may have that for sale so you can take that away with you on the same day, really. It kind of feeds my um, addiction, for sort of all things of that era, the 60s and 70s furniture as well, really. So I can have a bit of fun buying it in, and a bit of fun selling it on to people and enjoy talking about it as well, really.
6: And tell me a bit about your background.
11: Hairdressing-wise, I've done it for a very long time, since I was 16, in various places, from where I uh, grew up in Norfolk to London, where I worked at a place called Fourth Floor up in Clerkenwell, where I used to do things like the Paul Smith fashion shows in uh, Milan and Paris. And uh, the ethos behind Four Floor i pretty probably carried on to this shop here, and my very good friend Connor, who opened uh, a shop in Norwich, I also worked with him at Four Floor, he's done the same. So we've kind of splintered away from the mothership that is 4th Floor and Clerkenwell. And we've recreated it in our own style, but there's elements of 4th uh, Floor within our, our own shops, really.
6: OK, so I was just in Iran and I saw two soldiers, tiny miniatures on a vase. Can you just explain these to me?
11: Sure. I've had one or two of the customers ask me, why on earth there's an English soldier and a German soldier? In a, in, a, in a flower pot really but they're about 40 years old I think my mum found them last year whilst gardening in her garden back up in Norfolk and I just uh, bought them home, washed them and um, it's kind of like a diorama sort of thing really
6: That's like a proper personal touch to the shop Yeah,
11: that's it so it's a little bit of me in the shop as well really so there you go
6: So that was Giles from Smiths of Hackney I really enjoyed that. By the time that I was there, nobody got um, in, got in the shop, so we had time to talk. Because everywhere else on Hackney Road seems to be packed with, um, <laughs> that, you know, with thing? men queuing to have their haircuts, and I was so glad because otherwise it would have been very interesting trying to chat away with, you know, the the process going.
1: I have to say, I'm all for this uh, new interest in male grooming. I think it's a good thing. All this kind of. Um, you know, spending time on their beards and their hair, you know, why not? Why not? Um, You know, women have spent fortunes on hair and now men are getting much more into it. Although I'm always um, amazed at, you know, how much time they do spend these days and how much they spend on their barbers like this. It does cost quite a lot of money. I don't know if he told you about his Prices, whenever. yeah, yeah,
6: it is. It is not cheap to to be a men's style, but <laughs> um you know, it does pay off
5: because we do love the beards nowadays. I'm um, not sure you, about the you've got a beard <laughs> do, you, do you go to a barber to get your beard? I don't
3: actually cut my own hair because oh. it's so expensive. Usually, <laughs> yeah. You can. Well, I don't cut my hair. You can't see on the radio, but yeah. <laughs>
6: Yeah, well, actually, looking out uh, for uh, barbers and all those those related things, I did um, see a video of uh, an Indian barber that cut his own hair on the back, and all he could go around his hair, and it was absolutely extraordinary. I didn't ask Giles uh, to, you know, do something amazing over the um shop but um yeah that would be quite interesting if you know if anyone um on twitter would like to tweet us their magic skills (laughs) as you know as you know cutting hair trimming beards, we'd love to see them i don't think we would actually i would love to see that (laughs) even though that's not the best time perhaps in time but you know why not the sky's the limit
1: Okay, um, as usual, going from one ex- one subject to something completely different. Um, there's nothing like a bit of rummaging through your neighbour's old stuff to get conversations going. And Martina Randall started her Jumble Trail concept three years ago in Clapton, and it's now spreading nationwide. Martina explains how she started and what makes these street events so appealing. <laughs>
12: Everyone was happy, people had an excuse to talk to each other and there was a reward at the end of it. You know, they either got something for free or they made some money or they bought something that was amazing that they were looking for. They ate some cake and they got high on sugar. My name's Martina, I'm the founder of Jumble Trail. Jumble Trail is essentially a garden sale, but it's... It's a garden sale where the whole neighbourhood is involved. You set up a stall on your street, and then lots of people come along and buy from each other. You get to know your neighbours. It's it's just a really good opportunity to interact with people you wouldn't normally get a chance to speak to. Is this an
1: original idea, or did you see it somewhere else? I'm sure.
12: You... I'm sure it's not an original idea. I'm convinced of it. I was in Melbourne and. I love jumble and I love garage sales and I'd get on my bike and I'd cycle around looking for garage sales. So that was one aspect. And then when I lived in Bristol, they had arch trails and the arch trails would be like all around the houses and you'd just have a map and you'd go around. So I think I kind of put two and two together and I thought, why don't I have a jumble trail, which meant that I could benefit by having lots of jumble but also um, i just moved into Clapton and wanted to really kind of make a dent in the community and, and get to know the people on the street and have an excuse to to make friends really Did people just
1: get the
12: concept straight away? I was really worried that people wouldn't get it and I was really worried that no one was going to come so I s- essentially started the trail I kind of flyered the street and got really scared and I was like if ten people sign up it'll be great and I went a little bit crazy and just flyered the whole of Clapton. And then about 100 people signed up and it was like a massive success. And Time Out wrote about us five times. It was an evening standard call list. So it was such um, a massive uh, reaction.
1: Now you do this as a business, how does that
12: work? I feel more like a charity or a social enterprise than a business at the moment because it's not funding me. I'm certainly not living off it. Um, And I think for it to work successfully, it kind of needs to have one or two or three or a whole team of people being able to work on it full time. And there's lots of developments on the website that we want to finance and it's very difficult to do that with limited funds. But that's the beauty of it, is that we don't have any corporations telling us what to do. We don't have any outside influences kind of dominating how we run this grassroots thing. So at the moment, we're skint, but we're free. And that's kind of how we want to stay. But I think we just need to grow it and try and pull bits of money where we can and make the developments to the website.
1: So you've moved beyond Clapton now... How, yeah. How does that work? So do people just suggest to you okay. that they want to do a jumble trail somewhere else?
12: No, no one suggests to me. This is this is the whole point of Jumble Trail is that it's for anyone it's for whoever is inspired to do something in their community they can just get involved and do it like I'm not here to tell anyone how to run their event, I'm not here to tell anyone what to do, it's like essentially we're just a platform the reason we decided to become a website was because Clapton was such amazing feeling like it felt alive just walking around and there was such a buzz and it was so disarming like the actual day everyone was happy people had an excuse to talk to each other and there was a reward at the end of it you know they either got something for free or they made some money or they bought something that was amazing that they were looking for they ate some cake and they got high on sugar or you know they're just like someone stops and talks to each other it's just such a lovely thing and actually my investor who's kind of my little guardian angel shouldn't call him little my big guardian angel he essentially put money in because he took part on the the first jumble trail and felt it and you know was really inside it so he got understood it so he put money in and then we um grew it from there and that funded the development of the website so we built the website with this pot of money now the money's gone but we're still carrying on and looking for the next kind of revenue stream
1: so when's the next one in london
12: oh my gosh they're everywhere all the time we had four last weekend It's actually getting further than London. The Leeds was the furthest north, and we've actually got one in Falmouth, which is the furthest west. So it's very, very exciting. Are you
1: doing one in Clapton?
12: Are you coming? Oh yes, I'm coming back to the motherland. How could I not do one? It's like that's my kind of masthead. You know, this is like the flagship is Clapton. So we're actually doing two in Clapton. The first one is in June organised by me because that's my baby and I still feel like I, I can't help but you know be involved with it I mean you know you're doing something right when you you've got time out contacting you for information and then there's going to be one in September but what's brilliant is people have come forward I've asked for volunteers this year so if anyone wants to volunteer get in touch someone's come forward to be the champion of the one in September and I think that's fantastic because the whole point of Jumble Trail is to connect people and to give everyone an opportunity to grow, because it's not just about having the day. It's like the the journey of building it and like um, the social platform and, and conversing with people and meeting your neighbours and yeah. and kind of empower the empowering feeling of being like I created that, I did that, and that is fantastic. And that's something that it's it's like a we're developing people as well learning from each other and realising there's a lot of love and skills that can be kind of shared you know, it's really nice for me that moves me because then I, it feels like we are making a difference and we are kind of changing the perspective of what, what a community is and how to do the internet in a local way
1: So that was Martina Randall's talking about the Jumble Trail. And the Clapton Jumble Trail is happening on Sunday, the 14th of June. And it's looking like it's going to be quite an epic one. Um, and there are plenty, as she said, going on all year round all over Britain. Um, so just go onto their website, um, Jumble Trail, and you'll, you'll you can just either go along to someone else's or just start your own that's i think that's the idea it's about getting people just to um be inspired and start up their own tr- uh, jumble trail in where they live and people are doing it and they obviously seems to be something that
5: <laughs> resonates yeah it definitely resonates with me i'm one of four sisters who did a lot of clothes swapping and hand-me-downing you know as we were growing up so i love rummaging around other people's stuff.
6: Yeah, it's always, and you never know what you're going to find because people just have all sorts of things and last year I was walking around and I saw a lot of weird things and I ha- wasn't carrying any cash on me and I was like, I regret this so much, so this year I'm going to plan it, I'm going to get get there and, you know, be all around everyone everyone's doors, like what do you have, because you always find these gems everywhere. Yeah, always. there's
1: nothing like someone else's junk to make <laughs> <Yeah>. you happy. <laughs> but also, it's this excuse to get um, neighbours and communities talking to Definitely each other together. and there does seem to be a need for things to be a little bit organised for, for neighbours to just kind of chat they just they need something so you know if it's something like the big lunch which is an organised food event or I don't know a yard party where someone will organise something or this jumble trail is it does seem to be this thing where you you don't just chat to, yeah, you might chat to them, but if you have an event and if you have like a street party or, or one of these jumble trails, then, you know, for the rest of the year, you can say hello to those neighbours. So I think that's that's the kind of main thing about this, why it works so well. And the other the other interesting thing she pointed out is that as we get more global and, um, you know, the internet is used for global things, um how can we kind of find this sense of community again and it's a really great way to use the internet is to actually um create a community a local community and um so yeah i think i think that's why she's so enthusiastic about it and it's why it works so well because i think we're all looking for that sense of community again as we get more and more global and international
6: i wouldn't put it better (laughs) Now, um, we're going to leave you with some more music from Robert Chaney, um, who we talked to earlier on the show. And Robert is playing at the Seven Jazz Quarters in Dalston in East London tomorrow night. But you can also listen anytime on Bandcamp, right, Robert? That's right. Wonderful. So uh, what track do you have lined up for us?
3: So this one's called The Morning After.
6: Wonderful. Just before we hear, that's just enough time to say we've been East Cars here on Resonance 104.4 FM. And uh, you can find all about our uh, East London discoveries at eastcarshow.com. And thanks for listening, Robert. Take it away.
3: Cheers. <laughs>
0: After. Lipstick on the champagne glass, your hair upon the pillow, telling truth where you were lying. But it's not that daylight brings surprise. I've often seen those jagged lines The sunlight writes upon the wall The patterns of the blind Sometimes, dear It appears so clear That where you are Is so far As if I had no force of will To overcome regrettable temptations I can see